Morning. I could hear my breath going in, so I over-exaggerated it for fun there. I thought that was a good time. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. You tell me. Ah. I'm glad that you guys are here to worship with us, as always. Uh, it's good for you to be here. You should be here. And I don't say that to uh, guilt you in any way, shape, or form. I just mean this is... It is good and right to find yourself uh, worshiping with believers uh, on a regular basis. It does something to us. And we appreciate that you would choose to do that here with us. And uh, we're glad that that's what we get the opportunity and uh, chance to do on a regular basis with you. So um, we're glad you are here. And we are uh, honored anytime you choose to do this. There's not a whole lot of announcements in the next few weeks where, uh, for those of you that uh, maybe aren't quite so familiar or you've heard us say it and you didn't know what it means, uh, we're going to stick in the season of Easter for the next few weeks. Uh, Easter season is uh, maybe a weird saying to you or something that you weren't familiar with or, or you're like, well, I don't, like, isn't Easter a day and now we've moved on? No, uh, Easter is not a day and we do not just move on. Uh, Easter is actually 50 days. It's longer than and bigger than and better than Lent in all sense and intents and purposes of that word. And so we are going to continue to celebrate Easter. And we're going to continue to uh, embrace and uh, look towards a season of feasting, which for a lot of you may be weird and may be different. This is what I think is easy to say and easy to do. is It's easy to acknowledge and name brokenness and hardship. It's easy to kind of, uh, you know, oh yeah, like it's been hard, it's been busy. I don't know how many of you feel this in life, but I think oftentimes when things are going really well, you're more hesitant to be like, hey man, things are just really great. Now maybe you're the eternal optimist and a really positive person and you're like, that's the only phrase I know how to say, like I struggle on the other end. But I think societally and culturally, especially in a space like this, I know most of you, I've had coffee with most of you in this room or some sort of way in which we've talked beyond just hello. And I think that a lot of us uh, will struggle with that. We don't want to be fake. We don't want to be insincere. Um, many of us grew up in or are well acquainted with a type of Christianity that is that, that's just like, oh, everything's good, everything's great, and then we move on with life. And we want a more authentic, we want a, like something, a substance to what we believe in and how we live our lives. And so for a lot of us, I think we really struggle with this idea of feasting and celebrating, of declaring things are good even when maybe we don't feel like things are good. There's a way in which we celebrate a sense of stoicism or an excitement where we look at sadness, difficulty, brokenness, and we kind of maybe don't feel all that broken and we say, man, that's so brave of them. You know, look at them kind of weathering the storm, moving on, even though everything's hard and difficult for them right now. They seem so balanced and so, you know, and, and we celebrate that. But when we get to a moment of celebration, of feasting, of excitement, of joy, we have this notion or this idea that we're supposed to somehow feel all of that more than what we express outwardly. That we have to in some way, like, if we're going to celebrate and feast, then we need to, like, feel like celebratory, that we need to feel this joy before we can participate in joy. And the season of Easter kind of says, no, that's not always the case, that actually this is a spiritual practice, that it is a practice to choose joy and not in the trite and cliche ways that you're choosing joy in the midst of hardship, 
that you are actually going to intentionally set aside space and time and you're going to mark it differently and you're going to invite people into your homes hopefully and if you don't have homes that you can invite people in you're going to meet people at the brewery or at a coffee shop whatever you know you want to do and you're going to say hey we're going to do this differently we're going to choose to celebrate during this season and we want you guys to do that and we hope that you can and so that's what our series the next uh, five Sundays is sort of going to be about we're going to sit in this time and in this space and we're going to say we're going to choose to celebrate. So there's not a lot of corporate events happening uh, the next few weeks in terms of Mosaic. We'll do some stuff over the summer and start announcing that soon. But for the next five, six weeks, what we want to invite you guys into is small groups and relationship, being here and being present on Sunday mornings, uh, giving your time, uh, not just in a serving and you know, prayerful, quiet kind of way, but giving your time to inviting people into celebration and into joy and for some of us uh, the hardships didn't stop when Easter Sunday happened and this week maybe has already been a week of loss and disappointment and frustration for you and you're like this is a really bad start to Easter and that's okay because we're gonna continue to celebrate anyways we're gonna embrace what it means that we are people of the resurrection without denying the hardships and the realities of life it's, it's not an either or, it is in a, it's a both and, as you know I love to say. But it is this way in which it's difficult for us to fathom this. And so we're going to attempt to do this. And so our series is how do we do this? How do we inhabit this resurrection life? Like how do we, you know, kind of embrace what it means to be people of the resurrection when death is still a reality for us, when hardship is still a reality. And we want to encourage you outside of this space to find ways to practice, uh, to participate, and to uh, pursue joy and excitement and celebration. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read our passage this morning. It's short, 1 Peter verses 3 through 9. And as you hear this passage read, I think everything I just said will make a whole lot of sense if it didn't already. Uh, But here we are. Hear these words from Peter to an elect group of exiles and Gentiles scattered throughout minor Asia. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord and Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. This is one of those moments where we can actually uh, say very confidently and with great, uh, you know, excitement, thanks be to God, that this is true. 
And this is what Easter season's about. So as we frame this series and the season, and Easter tide is another language you'll hear, or another word you'll hear us use around this, this Easter season, Easter tide, this moment that we give ourselves to feasting and celebrating, being excited about the fact that Jesus Christ has risen. We do so knowing that this passage is the reality for us. We don't just enter into this season blindly, and and we talked about this last Sunday on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, that for some of us, for a lot of us, moving out of grief and sorrow, moving out of fasting can take time. It's difficult. Injuries, diets, uh, for different reasons, whatever, maybe these moments where you had to give something up for some time because somebody asked you to or you needed to. You find yourself hesitant when all of a sudden you can have it again. You're kind of like, I don't know. Do I trust it? Am I fully healed? Am I ready to laugh? Am I ready to get back out there? You know, the cliche dating term. But we recognize that sometimes after you've had a moment of grief and of sorrow, to enter back into joy can be difficult. And it's oftentimes difficult because we know the reality that the pain is still out there. Just because you've healed once doesn't mean that you'll never have to deal with it again. And we as believers know that that's true of the life we live. Just because we celebrated Resurrection Sunday and, and the truth and the like, core tenet of our faith that we believe and proclaim that Jesus Christ experienced a real resurrection in history and in time and is still resurrected in his human form sitting at the right hand of God the Father. We believe this. We hold true to it. But that doesn't mean that all of a sudden now we just will never have a difficult moment ever in our life again doesn't mean, and we know that, right? And so sometimes we're hesitant to get excited about things because to get excited about something, to look forward to something, to anticipate it, is to know that we'll experience disappointment, sorrow, grief. To love, to to cherish, to find joy in something is to know that sorrow and sadness inevitably are around the corner. But yet this is what we're called to. And so we want to frame this whole season with this idea of acknowledging this tension and this difficulty. And I think Peter does it well to this group of people. I hinted at the welcome in verses 1 and 2 that Peter gives in his letter. This is Peter writing to a bunch of Gentiles, a bunch of people that didn't grow up Jewish. And at this point in time in the faith, those following Jesus, Christianity and the followers of Jesus would have still been this weird kind of uh, sect of Judaism They're still kind of figuring out what they want to be, where they're going to go. It's not until the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem and the diaspora really happens and they really get spread out that like Christianity kind of totally comes out from Judaism all on its own. But at this point, there's this kind of weird tension. Are all these non-Jews, are they supposed to experience the same thing? Are they a part of this family? Are they a part of these promises that these Jewish people like Peter have been holding on to? And this group of Gentiles that was in uh, minor Asia, as your text says, which would be modern-day Turkey, for those of you that are good at geography, for those of you that aren't, just know it's over there somewhere, and then we can move on. But it's outside of this space where it would have been typical for Jewish people to kind of be doing things. And so we see that the, the gospel message is moving, and it's including this group of people. And Peter's welcome in two verses, as a Jew, is amazing. Because it is loaded with Old Testament language. Exiles, foreigners, sojourners, chosen, elect, people of God. And in a very quick and succinct way, what Peter is saying is those of you that are Gentiles, 
Those of you that have lived outside of this promise that are not Jews, that may be confused about what's going on, and you found Jesus, guess what? You now are a part of the people of God. And all that language he's using is Old Testament language. Promised, chosen, electile, electiles, that's not even a real word. I was combining elect and Gentiles there, I think, is what happened. I got letters after my name, so I can make up words. It's fair. Anyways, uh, that's an academic joke for those of you that aren't aware. So there's this way in which he's saying, you are now these people. And what's amazing about this is he's saying their history, our history, the Jewish history, Jesus' history, the Messiah, the prophets, the writings, Yahweh, his history with his people is now your history. It is now your story, even though you didn't grow up with this even though you didn't struggle with the persecution that Jews struggled with, even though you didn't like, get born into the longing and the desire for the Messiah to come, you now have those stories and can celebrate that the Messiah has come. And this is true of us as the church. I think it's one of the beautiful metaphors of marriage. We, we oftentimes in our modern 21st century can overuse marriage and, and ostracize people. I get that, but marriage is a beautiful and the chosen uh, primary metaphor of the Bible to explain what's happening with Jesus and his people in the church. And I think one of the cool things about marriage is that, and I say this when I officiate a wedding, is that when you stand before your family and your gathered friends in church as a married couple and declare that your vows towards one another, in that moment, the other story becomes a part of yours. When Drew and Becca got married, and Becca was looking directly at me, so I'll use them. When they got married, right, all of a sudden now Drew's family and their successes and their failures and their stories become a part of Becca's successes and failures and stories and their griefs and their hardships and vice versa, right? And this happens in the church. We together here in this space, we take on and carry the stories of the Jewish people and of the New Testament church, but we also get to carry and celebrate one another's stories. As we enter into this, we become this people that celebrate with one another and that we grieve with one another. And our stories get tied into this whole thing that proclaim the gospel in a way that we can't on our own. And he's saying, welcome to this. This has always been the story of the Jewish people. It's always been this history and this process of inviting new people and new generations back into the story of God and saying the successes and failures that we have written about and memorized and retold are now your successes and failures. And that will always continue. It doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop when scripture stopped being written or collected in the way that we have it. It's true of us in this space and in seasons like this. We hold it together. And our stories are one another's. And it's part of the importance of gathering to the church. And this allows us then, as Peter's saying, to pray in a way that says, to God our Father, Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Father of Daniel, Grant, you know, Jeremiah. Like th these are the ways in which we have this way that our stories begin to be our God is the one and the same. And we serve them together and alongside one another. And we enter into this season of this serving, this participation and joy and excitement. And this allows us to open up in a way that we don't try to hold so close-handedly to these ideas that it is only if I'm sort of doing this thing, this success, this, as long as I'm gaining what I need to gain, that then God's goodness is real. No, 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 no. The people of God collectively, there's this communal aspect to it, this thing that is happening that we're being invited into. 
And part of that is being invited into the suffering of the church and the people of God that has always been. And this is where Peter goes right away. It's, a, it's not a weird jump, but it's, it's a big jump. He's excited. He's praising. So there's this greeting. He's telling everybody, hey, this is awesome. This is amazing. You now are these people. You're, you're in. You're a part of it because of Jesus and what he did and his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And now you have this opportunity. And then he jumps to song, verse 3. Praise be to God, right? Blessed is the God. It's this song. It's a celebration. It's worship. That this is who God is, and this is your reality, and this is your truth. And so you're going to suffer. And it's a theme that runs through the rest of 1 Peter. That this exiles, these exiles, foreigners, strangers, aliens in this land, in this space that we call here and now, that we call the current time and the present, that suffering is there for these people that are celebrating and following after one who has conquered death, that lives and reigns victorious over death itself. That's a tension. You kind of go, wait a minute, what? I thought this was Easter. I thought we were supposed to just, you know, be happy and rejoice. But Peter seems to be saying that part of that rejoicing, part of that joy is holding that to be true, which is why I said we don't want to just move to trite, cliche, Easter happened and now life is all good. Part of the ability to celebrate and to have this joy, to feast in these moments and in these times is to hold that truth near to you, to hold the reality that we still face death and brokenness around us and that it's not just everything's rainbows and butterflies. And so Peter moves to this, and he begins to talk. And in the same way, when he starts to talk about the suffering and the inheritance, this is Old Testament language again. He's inviting them into the story of God that has been, the story that Jesus fulfilled and carried, and saying, now you too will carry the story of Jesus. The failures, the shortcomings, the persecution, the difficulties, these things that... Christ took on himself on the cross. He's asking you to take up because this is the way in which your faith begins to be made pure, to be made whole as you experience these things, as you walk through these things. He's saying you are this people and you need to experience it. And so he continues to say in verses 3 through 5, that you will hold on to these profound promises of what is to come in the midst of those trials. That it's from that space that these trials come and the difficulties face you. From the space and this honest assessment and truth that in the end there is a hope, there is an inheritance. And this is the New Testament language, of, or the Old Testament language of inheritance was more specifically related to land. Uh, you see it first in the 12 tribes and the land that they're given. And it's a theme that's continued all the way up through Jesus' disciples when they constantly think that this is the moment that Jesus is going to now take back the land and give it to them. Even though he dies and is uh, resurrected and then ascends. I mean, right up into the ascension, the disciples are going, uh, especially Peter, Peter's going, hey, this is the time, right? Like, that you're going to give us the land now. That, like, we're going to do this thing. Like, we're going to get Jerusalem back and conquer the Romans free ourselves of this oppression. And Jesus is like, you'll, you'll get it. 
This is just a side note right here, First Peter, as I was reading this, because just uh, to, earlier in Lent, we preached on the transfiguration. And I always thought it was interesting that Jesus is telling Peter and James and John, like, hey, don't go talk about this right away. And I read in a commentary, and I shared it here at church the Sunday I preached on it, that one of the things that they were saying that they think is happening there is that when you experience the divine like that, when you have a moment where the holy is placed in front of you, that oftentimes in our human minds, we can't really understand or fathom what happened right away. In, the, in some sense, what Jesus is saying, he's not being mysterious or tricky, although there's some of that in you know, the New Testament. We know that in the gospel writings. But one of the things he's doing is he's saying to them, like, this is going to take some time for you to fully grasp and understand. You're going to have to experience some more life. And I made the joke then that Peter immediately like, gets it wrong again. right? He comes down and he's like, dang it, I messed up again. And then he does it again and again and again and again. And it's like by First Peter, you know, we're, we think probably 35, 30-ish years later after Jesus has ascended, he finally gets it. Like he's, he's finally starting to be able to articulate it. This is a, a word to those of you that teach, like myself, or maybe have aspirations to write something. Uh, Eugene Peterson says you need to be in your 40s before you write anything spiritual or theological because you haven't experienced enough life. I think that th there's probably some truth to that. You see it in Peter takes him a while to get here and he's finally in this space where he begins to understand these inheritance these promises these truths this life that the old testament had been like promising to the people of god for generation after generation century after century it's fulfilled in jesus in a different kind of way that it's not just the physical land and the overthrow of Rome and the political powers and, and this city that will be this fortitude of a nation in a geopolitical sense. Peter gets it. He finally understands, no, 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 this is meant to be this inheritance, this spiritual inheritance that we don't fully grasp and understand. He's going to talk about it more through the rest of his letter, and he's saying like this, this is now yours too, you Gentiles. This is available to all of us. This truth, this reality that one day we will see in full and we will know in full, no longer in part. No longer will we have to hold in tension the tinges of pain and of death and of grief and sorrow with the realities of a resurrected and risen king. We will experience it fully, but we're not there yet. But we know it's coming and we have a better understanding of what it is as Christ has revealed and made it clear to us. He's saying, so hold on to that in the midst of this. These hardships that you face, these difficulties that are all around you. And he's singing this song and saying, because of this, this reality, you now live in a way that you have a new hope. You live a part of a new family. You have within you now a new identity to be a new creation. And he says to be reborn or to be regenerated or rebegotten. As Jesus is the only begotten Son, you now are re-begotten of the Father alongside of Jesus. This is now your place in the human experience because of what Christ did on the cross and in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so these promises and inheritances that are given are now yours to hold on to. But life is throwing some difficult things at these Gentiles. The recipients of Peter's letter aren't just experiencing death and sorrow and grief in the way that we do and will. That the inevitable sadnesses of life, the inevitable losses of life, disappointed dreams, broken promises from those around us. But he's actually writing about the persecution of these people because they've given their lives to Jesus. 
It's a real persecution that you and I don't have to experience in the same kind of way. Just a few short years after Peter writes this, Christianity is going to become illegal in Rome. Nero is going to burn people at the stake just for professing and believing in Jesus. And these women and men that are following him are going to willingly go there because they've seen and experienced what the life of Jesus can be and they believe in it. We don't have that threat here today. We're free to worship and to gather here. And so I think that then the temptation of a sermon like this, and the sermon, I'm just going to be honest, the sermon that I really wanted to preach, I read this briefly earlier in the week. I was like, yeah, that's, we'll go with First Peter, Texas, I like First Peter, had some ideas, had some thoughts, kind of a structure, and outline in my mind that I wanted to preach and that I was excited about. And the longer I sat with it, I just felt like it wasn't going anywhere. I think it's because the sermon, here's the sermon I wanted to preach, okay? So the recipients in the letter of First Peter, they're experiencing persecution. We don't have persecution, but we do have hardships and trials, and some of you didn't get the job you wanted, and some of you aren't married yet, and some of you, you know, have struggles with your family, and all these real painful things, I'm not making light of them, and we go, in the light of resurrection, we're going to have these hardships, so there's some joy to be found in the midst of difficult lives. That is not what Peter is saying here, and that's why this is a different type of sermon and a different type of passage. Peter is not saying that God knew that you were going to have to experience the loss or the death of a parent at a young age and that that would be the way you found Jesus. Praise be to God that he is good enough to take our mourning and our ashes and turn it into rejoicing and to dancing and to beauty. He does that because he's that good. But it doesn't mean that he caused it or wanted it to happen to you, okay? It doesn't mean that he was like, oh, yeah, I can't wait for them to just be real sad. And then they're going to find me because that's the type of God I am. No, no, no. That's not what he's doing. It's not the intention of Peter saying that Christ causes your suffering. What he's talking about here specifically is the persecution and the difficulties and the hardships that they're experiencing in their life because of the unique and intentional decision to practice the way of Jesus, to follow in his footsteps and to do things differently to orient and structure their lives in a different kind of way that flies in the face of the societal and cultural norms around them. He's saying that, that type of suffering for those types of decisions, those are the types of things that Jesus intended for you to experience and ordain for all of his followers. Because that is the type of cross-bearing and walking into suffering that Jesus himself did and he looked at his disciples and said you too will have to do the same you will experience hardships in your life difficulties you will place yourself in the way of sadness loss you will take on others grief when you practice the way of Jesus your life will not just be simple and easy it will not just be all better Because you will be called to at moments when you have no reason to care for the plight or the struggles of someone that has less than you, you will be called to experience and to feel what it must be like to be that person and to serve and to sit alongside of them. You will be called to shoulder the burdens and the hardships of some of the people in this space and in this room when your life is fine and it would be easier to just ignore it. But you will also be called to say no to things to experience certain things, to enjoy the luxuries of life that modern and prevalent wisdom would say, yeah, like that's the route your life is supposed to go. And you'll say, well, no, it's not because I don't function 
and operate off of common wisdom. I function and operate off of the way of Jesus. And that will cause you to not be able to get certain things. And I think it will even go as far as putting you in places where you might experience some ridicule. You might experience some uh, second glances. We live in too much of like a everybody's nice to everybody culture unless we're online and then everybody's really, really mean. Sometimes if you're really close to somebody, it might just be, you know, just text message. I'll say nice things to your face, and then as soon as we leave, it's like, it's like, why are you, I asked if everything was cool, man. Like, why you got to text me like that? That's my weakness. I do it, and I have to apologize. I shouldn't have texted you. I should have talked to you in person. I'm sorry. But we're real nice to each other. And in the Southeast, specifically, we live in a, you know, we're kind of on the edge of a Christian culture. And so you may not experience persecution, but you'll get double glances. You'll get some side glances of, really? Like, you're, that, okay, that's kind of weird. Oh, you're like one of those people. Have any of you gotten that one? Oh, you're, you, like, you actually follow, oh, like, I mean, I, I believe in Jesus, but, like, ugh, I don't, I wouldn't do that. Like, that's crazy. That's not persecution, but it is this awkward moment where you recognize that your life is to be different. But it's a function on a different kind of paradigm, if you want to say that, a different type of rhythm. That's what I love about the liturgical calendar, and we've been saying this over and over and over again in 2023, that there's this way in which we as Christians mark and operate time differently than the culture around us. Our calendar, our seasons, our rhythms are not tied to the way the world celebrates, but to the way Christ and the church has called us to celebrate and orient our lives. You as your families and as individuals and your households and how you work, how you do things, should be marked differently. And this isn't the, you know, the call to wear the Christian t-shirt to the workforce. The, maybe that, I don't know if you heard that sermon when you were younger. I got that sermon, you know, youth group, like wear the Christian t-shirt to school so you can tell the gospel. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your life being so revolutionarily changed, like so radically different, so inverted, flipped upside down that you and your whole family function in a different kind of way that makes it at odds sometimes with the normal culture around you. That you say no to things that are good and wise and okay and that there's nothing wrong with them. This isn't a conversation about morality and ethics. It is not giving you a moral high ground or a righteous high ground saying, well, if I do this, then like I'm better than everybody else. It's not what I'm saying. Oftentimes the things that are placed before you morally and ethically, there's nothing wrong with them. Oftentimes the things, they make good sense. But the reality is, as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promises and the inheritance that you are to inherit and to receive, it means that your life looks different. That you orient differently. So much so that this is the reality I've had to come to grips with. I'm waiting for the conversation when I have to sit my children down. And I have to see them struggle through a decision and say, hey, I get it, bud. No, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm not saying that, that's like, that, that they're a bad person. I'm just saying in our family, we choose to follow Jesus, and that means we don't get to do that. That means we don't act that way. That means we don't say those things. There's nothing wrong with it. Your, your friends are good kids. I love them. Be friends with them. Hang out with them. Do what you want. But like in our family... In our family, we do it differently. Not because we're better, not because we're more right, whatever. It's because we are choosing 
to orient our life around the realities that Jesus Christ has risen. And our resurrected life, the way we do this, has to be different. And that will cause hardship. And it will cause difficulties. You will have to say no to promotions because it flies in the face of you being able to be present with your family the way that you want to. It's the reality of following Jesus. Sometimes you'll get to say yes to those promotions. That's the beauty of following Jesus. Sometimes it's your choice and the other person gets to do what they get to do and it sucks. Sometimes you have to say no to things that somebody else gets to say yes to because that's what their family needs and that's what Jesus would call them to. There's no script here for us to follow other than us genuinely and honestly sitting before ourselves and our loved ones in the Lord and our community around us and saying, Lord, what would you have me do in light of the fact that you are risen and that you reign and that you are king over me and all of creation? That's what 1 Peter is calling us to. That's the suffering that he's saying. In that then, when you suffer in that kind of way, it's not saying you'll like it. It's not saying that you do it because, you know, you're sadistic and you think pain's good. Maybe if you like to do workouts with David Eden, you've got to be a little sadistic to think pain's sort of good. But it's not even what, we're not talking about spiritual exercise here. Jesus is saying, no, it will hurt so much that you will cry tears. You will beg God to not make this be the way. You will plead the way the psalmist pleads. Is there any way? Have you abandoned me? Have you left me here to suffer and to die? And yet in that, because of the power and the hope of the resurrection, you will experience joy. Not in place of. It won't just like somehow turn into it. The pain and the suffering will be very real and simultaneously you will also know that there is a joy because you are holding on to a promise that is bigger than and further out than what you can experience and see in the right here. To follow Jesus is to force yourself to look beyond the imminent, to stop thinking about just this moment right here and to look at the long view of life and the promise that is over there and to give your life to becoming that thing that you already are. To becoming and to allow the difficulties and the hardships because that's what Peter promises is that those hardships that you face because of following Jesus they'll do a thing in which they purify and sanctify you through the power of the Holy Spirit and the way that gold is purified in fire Peter's promises that you and your faith in Jesus will be purified so much so that you will be better than the analogy of the gold and that you will last forever and that gold will not that you build something in your life that is eternal and you choose the eternal in the present moment. This is the way we live into the resurrection and the realities of it. It will not mean that in the resurrection life, all things that are hard and difficult just magically go away. It actually means that choosing to live in a celebratory, joyous, hope-filled, hope -filled, love-filled life means that you will actually choose to place yourself in the way of some of the suffering that we oftentimes want to escape as human beings. Side note, seasons like Lent, sermons like this, these are the reasons I laugh, and I'm not trying to be mean or intellectually arrogant, but when I hear the excuse that Christianity, or this idea that Christianity is just a way for people to kind of cope with the difficult and harsh realities of life, yeah, there are some forms of Christianity to do that, but not this way. It is to stare those difficulties and those realities dead in the eye and to say, yeah, but God's bigger.
Jesus is bigger. Jesus is better. And so I'll experience it. I'll walk through it with my head held high, knowing the pain is hard. And allowing ourselves to feel it. There's some way in which this moment of resurrection that we are to keep ever before us the reality of our death. And that we're all going to die. Lent doesn't just cease to exist as a believer on this side of eternity. Like we kind of hold that intention as we're here. We, we choose to celebrate knowing that our death is inevitable. That's why we celebrate. Because God has given us something better and bigger. And so we hold to it. Even in seasons of feasting. Latin term for it that I love is memento mori. To remember and to recall to your death. Monks used to keep skulls on their desk. Churches have, uh, we don't get this ability, but I wish we did. Churches that oftentimes have graveyards right outside. As you walk into worship and celebrate, the church tradition I grew up in, our sunrise service was in the, the cemetery outside of the church. We stood in it and watched the sun rise up in the east over the tombstones. And we celebrated and declared that Christ had defeated death as you stand amongst your loved ones that are buried in that space. There's a beauty to it. And we're so far removed from it. But as you embrace it and you name it and you know it, it allows you to celebrate in this kind of way. All those things, those deaths that we die a thousand times over and over again, along the way, the little d deaths, They mean nothing in the grand scheme. It's not to say that they're not painful now. They are. They're real. Don't hear me say that. It's just to say that even if the good things, the gold will perish, then give yourself to the eternal in light of the resurrection. As the band comes back up, they're going to play a song as they always do, and we're going to move to our time of communion. And as we move to that, there's lots of different aspects and facets of communion that are amazing and beautiful and lovely, and I wish sometimes you could say all of them every single Sunday, but you can't. And then there are certain Sundays that certain aspects, it's not all-encompassing, but certain parts of communion, I think, are overwhelmingly necessary to shine a giant spotlight on. And this morning... One of the parts of communion that I love so much is that as you come, you receive the free gift of the bread and the cup, the body broken, the blood poured out for you, for me, for the forgiveness of sins, the per preservation of God's people and of his saints. And you ingest it and you take it. And then what it does and what we believe is that it is more than just a mere symbol or sign, but that something in the Holy Spirit does something in you and that Christ becomes present to you in a different kind of way when you receive these elements. And he's near to you and he's close in a different kind of way. It's not the only way, it's not, you get what I'm saying, but this, there's something about this that the church has done for thousands of years where Christ's presence is real here as we come to the table. And what is amazing about the presence of Christ that is that real and that near is that it can't but change you and shift you and form you and redirect you and recenter you and restore you and all of the language that we love to use. And as you take the elements, it does this thing as it digests and the bread and the juice does the thing that the body does which uses it to become a part of itself. 
gets into your bloodstream, all of these things that we know to be true about food and nutrition. But I believe that you can take that analogy and run with it in that spiritually we believe that there is something that happens as you eat of the bread and you drink of the cup, that Jesus' life, his body broken, his blood poured out, that it somehow it changes you and you become more like that. That you become more like Jesus in these moments. I'm convinced of it. I really believe that this happens. Not instantaneously. Maybe not even noticeably the first time. Maybe not even noticeably the first 52 times. Or the first 520 times. But over the course of your life, I believe that as you come and you receive and you understand who Christ is, that it changes you completely and wholly. And in that, then you embrace these moments just as Christ did. You embrace the suffering and the brokenness. You willingly allow yourself to be poured out for others, for those around you, in order that they too might know and experience that there is joy even in the hardship. There's hope beyond just what we can see in front of us. And that ultimately... Christ's victory over the grave will always remain. It is being held and stored where it is safe and nothing can stop it. And so you choose to embrace these ideas and these realities and to allow it to let your life reflect it. So I invite you to come. Take the bread, the cup, go back to your seat, hold on to the elements. And pray in this moment and ask the Holy Spirit in what ways that you could allow this to be true of you today, to let it change you, shape you, reform you, in order that your life might continue to become and look more and more like the life that Christ would intend for you and have for you. Come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.